how also do the folks who are showing up, especially for black folks in those moments, also understand that the work happens after the work too? Because、um, you know, like folks weren't asking the questions like, "Hey, how do you recuperate from this? What is the support needed from all of us right now in order to get y'all in a really sustainable place? How do we recognize the amount of trauma that you just、um, took on for the benefit of our entire local progressive community and for Black people, you know, all over the world?、Um, how do we recognize that? And how do we support y'all in that process?" This is Healing Justice, a podcast bridging conversations at the intersections of collective healing and social change. I'm your host, Kate Warning, and this week we're talking with Candice Montgomery and Miski Noor of the Black Lives Matter Global Network and Black Visions Collective in the Twin Cities. We'll hear about the 18-day police station occupation that followed the police murder of Jamar Clark in Minneapolis. And how healing, escalation, and direct action can and need to go hand in hand. They also share about collective housing projects, gaining trust in moments of crisis and direct action, raising money for therapy and support for leaders who seriously need it, and organizer burnout. And this episode is really important. For so many of our movements, the moments when we are experiencing the most direct, deep personal loss and injustice, the times when we really need to slow down for our emotional well-being, are often the very moments that we need to give the most to escalate, to organize actions, hone our message, and fight back. And holding that grief and rage and danger with skill and sacrifice and action all at the same time is a lot to ask of ourselves. And if you know that particular intersection of pain and hustle more intimately than folks who work with Black Lives Matter. Just in the couple of weeks between when we recorded this conversation and when this will air. The following events occurred. We found out that there would be no charges against the officers who murdered Alton Sterling in Baton Rouge. Stephane Clark, a 22-year-old Black Muslim man who was holding his cell phone in his grandmother's backyard in Sacramento, was murdered by police. Sahid Vassal was murdered by police in broad daylight while holding a pipe in Crown Heights, Brooklyn. And Tyrone Rashad Williams in Minneapolis was shot on his mother's porch. Tyrone was active in calls for justice in the police killings of Marcus Golden, Jamar Clark, as we'll hear about in this episode, and Philando Castile. And he traveled to Standing Rock Reservation in North Dakota to stand against the construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline. That's a lot of loss for just a couple of weeks. And so we dedicate this episode to them and to even more folks that I didn't hear about or that we don't know about or that don't make the headlines who have been lost. We honor the time that Miski and Candice have taken to share with us, to lead us, in the midst of so much to respond to. 
And for those who may be listening who question tactics or feel uncomfortable with confrontation, like the 12-hour police standoff that they'll share about, I invite you to really grapple with us, to grapple with what side of those confrontations you are actually uncomfortable with, and to respect the real physical sacrifices made by leaders who are willing to disrupt and confront even as their bodies are the most vulnerable to violence and the particular pressure and targeting that Black folks face in revealing the places that anti-Blackness still thrives through their action. As Miski will tell us in this conversation, for anybody to be free, Black folks have to be free. Their work is leading us. You'll hear them each talk about their work and introduce themselves more fully as we dive in together. So let's do that. Thanks for being here with us. Here we go. Hey, everyone. Candice Montgomery here, um, based in Minneapolis, and I currently work for the Black Lives Matter Global Network on staff um, in our organizing department, our work, um, as well I'm a lead um, with our locally based chapter here in Minneapolis, formerly called Black Lives Matter Minneapolis, now called Black Visions Collective. Um, But I was born in Southern Florida, raised in rural Maine, um, and came out to Minnesota about five years ago. Um, And super excited for this conversation, um, just because of the ways in which um, really thinking intentionally about my healing and our sort of collective healing has really opened up a lot of opportunity for what I see as a fuller life for myself and for those around me Um, and have loved the podcasts of this that I've heard of some of the OGs that have also been on here. So happy to be on. Hey y'all. So my name is Miski Noor um, and I uh, work as a communication strategist with the Black Lives Matter Global Network um, and am also um, an organizer with our local chapter here, Black Visions Collective. Um, so really happy to be repping Minneapolis um, and really excited to, to be in this space. Um, like Candace said, um, so many incredible dope um, healers and thinkers have been on this podcast and really excited to be in this space to just talk about um, what I've been learning, right, from a perspective of somebody who's just really learning about healing justice and um, is, is learning um, about um, transformation. So. Um, excited to be in this space and, and to share in that way. And uh, really also coming from the perspective of somebody, like when you talk about organizing and, and, and healing, um, somebody who has burnt out before and um, who has had to leave the work um, and who doesn't want to have to do that. So really thinking about um, how, how are we doing this work sustainably um, and how are we uh, you know, trying to uh, live out the liberation that we're trying to create um, in our bodies. Ms. I'm intrigued because I don't know if I know this story or not, but what can you tell us about burning out before and what that was like and what brought you back? Yeah, for sure. So um, before, you know, the movement for Black Lives popped off, um, I was actually working as uh, a community representative for a number of years for um, a congressperson here in Minnesota. And I got to do really, you know, dope work. Um, I I, uh, was somebody who provided support to um, 
uh, both like um, the the immigrant black community um, and the larger black community and um, got to su- support on immigration and, and foreign affairs issues um, and um, got to really be out in community and, and um, really building with folks. Um, but in a, you know, this is what, like 2010. So this is like a Tea Party Congress. And um, this is also like, there was actually a famine happening in Somalia. And, um, you know, and, and the pace of that work is just go, go. And, and a lot of our work is just go, go, go. And there isn't like any intentional thinking about how folks are being supported to take care of themselves and their health. Um, and I, um, while I was doing work to support my community, I also wasn't um, seeing the power shifts that I wanted to and seeing the power built um, uh, uh, for, for um, folks in my community um, as fast or, or the way that I, the, the way that, um, the way that I thought it could be built. So um, I ended up leaving, leaving politics, <laughs> uh, leaving organizing work, um, ended up working as like a pharmacy technician. You know, I like to joke and be like, I was a legal drug dealer, you know, pushing <laughs> blood pressure meds, um, but really like took a break and like was started to think about um, who am I building power with and who am I building power for um, and towards what. And, um, after doing some of that internal work, decided to start building locally. Um, so I ran for my neighborhood association and I won and I was like, you know, served on my, on my neighborhood board for a couple of years. And during that time, um, uh, you know, Ferguson, um, stood up, uh, for Mike Brown, who was murdered by Darren Wilson. And then in Minneapolis, we had, um, you know, we took over the mall of America and 3000 people showed up, um, to say that Black Lives Matter here, and um, we shut that down. And for me, it felt like, you know, um, it felt like somebody had pressed the go button. <laughs> and it was like, all right, we're all going for Black liberation in so many ways. And um, I was excited, and I jumped into this work. Um, and that's what brought me back. Mm. Thank you for sharing. Um Candace, I've only known you as somebody who was both doing the organizing work and deep into the healing work as well. Like, was there some order of that for you in your life? Did it come together? Like, what is your experience of sort of these multiple worlds? Yeah, um, I think I think for me, falling into community organizing was a process of healing. Um, you know, I was a a young black queer weirdo growing up in rural Maine um, <laughs> and was really looking for escape an escape when I went away to school um, and honestly found community organizing as a, as a thing that was affirming my, all of these life experiences that I had of like seeing my family work really hard and never getting by experiencing racism, experiencing sexism, all of those things, seeing those things articulated. And so I think in some ways, you know, like I um, have always said, you know, organizing saved my life because I was at really a a pivotal point in really questioning whether or not I wanted to be here because of the ways that I was experiencing the world. Um, But I feel like healing justice and really thinking intentionally about how healing justice is incorporated into not just my work, but my life um, came through the movement for black lives, um, 
like being in practice, just in spaces that were curated by folks who had already been thinking about this, some of which you've had on your, you know, your podcast already, Prentice. Um, I definitely would give a lot of mad, of mad love to that person for bringing that into my life. Um, but I think especially through this work and being in organizing in a way that was like consistently we were dealing with like high levels of trauma um, and consistently, especially supporting people who were um, either experiencing trauma through family members being murdered by the police, um, it, direct trauma with police, um, you know, all of those things um, felt like it was something that I really needed to seriously consider as not just like this tangential thing, like, oh, once in a while we do a breathing exercise or once in a while in a meeting, we talk about our feelings or like the bad things that happen to us. Um, but really something that is intertwined through the roots of all of our work. Um, and it really is there to, to nourish and to challenge us to grow further, um, came through like being really active in the movement for black lives, um, and learning from folks in, in this space. Thank you. And I want to ask more about that because one of my, um, probably the, the biggest regret that I have of a question that I didn't ask um, in a previous podcast episode is when I was talking to Prentice, not asking more about holding the extreme um, grief that happens particularly around like police murder, like state-sanctioned murder, and then having to respond in action, but literally dealing with losing someone, right? Like at the exact same time and how folks do that. And, and that brings up for me, like one of the most incredible history-making exemplary actions that we know of among many, but like seriously an awesome one in 2015 that went down in Minneapolis that both of you were part of, um, after the murder of Jamar Clark. And in that instance, like not only was someone in the community killed, but then also there was like direct violence that happened at your occupation. Right. And, and so I'd love like for folks who aren't familiar with that story, if y'all would be willing to share a little bit about like, just kind of like the facts of what happened, what went down. And then also how were you able to incorporate you know, community care or support to a degree that people even like survived that series of events, right? Um, I would just love to hear you teach us about that. Hi, listeners. We're going to take a quick pause here because you'll hear in a moment that Miski mid-sentence asks for a trigger warning. So uh, we want to inform you about what's coming up, some descriptions of events that happened in Minneapolis that if you would prefer not to listen to today, you are more than welcome to fast forward ahead in the interview and join us again in a few minutes. So the first one is, if you'd prefer not to hear a fairly specific description of police violence that happened against Jamar Clark, um, you can skip ahead about a minute. Beyond that, there are some more general descriptions of a confrontation with police and some police violence, as well as some white supremacist violence, that if you want to miss that completely, you can fast forward about 12 minutes from this point. There are not any mentions of sexualized violence. So just want you to be in choice about what you want to hear today, and let's hand it back to Miski. Ah. 
sorry, this this always brings up so many things, yeah? Um, so November 15th, 2015, uh, Minneapolis Police Department shot and killed Jamar Clark. Um, when it happened, actually, we were in the middle of uh, the first ever uh, people of color only momentum training. Um, so um, he was um, murdered uh, with his hands uh, handcuffed behind his back um, in 61 seconds. That's how long it took them to shoot him. Um, and it was about two in the morning. Sorry, I feel like maybe I should have given a trigger warning. <laughs> um, but for those details, but um uh, and, um, you know, we came together the next morning, um, at the training and, you know, we, for those who didn't know, we shared what happened and, uh, we had, a we went outside actually, and we, um, were led in a ceremony, um, by a local, um, Ojibwe femme, uh, uh, named Ariana Nason. And she led us, um, let us in a ceremony to just kind of honor Jamar in that moment. And um, after that, we, you know, kind of tried to finish the training, um, but also went, kind of also went into, um, uh, into media, immediate planning. Um, that day at three o'clock, we started with a rally at the site of his murder, uh, which is only like a block and a half, two blocks away from the 4th Precinct Police Station um, in North Minneapolis. And, um, so we, you know, we took up space, um, we shut down the street where he was killed and, um, we declared it a no cop zone and, uh, and community, uh, gathered there with us. And, um, and what happened, um, during, you know, uh, during this, during this rally was, um, like black and trans queer youth, um, and femmes. Um, and, uh, and, and our allies, um, took over the vestibule of the police station and said we were going to hold that, hold that vestibule down until they arrested us. Um, and then they didn't arrest us for 18 days. (laughs) Um, and, and yeah, and then we ended up having an 18 day occupation. Um, and so from, you know, that first day where we took over, um, took over the police station, um, we actually just, we set up an occupation. Um, we immediately started getting tents donated and, um, food. And there was a, uh, a kitchen and a pantry and a, like a food shelf and, um, uh, like a clothing swap, everything, um, set up to like turn this into its own community center in some ways. Um, the first day after, um, after we took over this, took it over, we had a vigil and that vigil led to a march, a march in which we ended up taking over hi, uh, Highway 94, um, which was the last highway for us, last like interstate for us to take over in the state of Minnesota, um, where 51 people ended up taking arrest, including Candace. Um, and, um, and that was day, that was day two of our occupation um, on day three, um, our former mayor, Betsy Hodges, um, decided to try to, um, remove us, um, after, um, you know, she had met with us in the family and actually kind of pretended to be working with us <laughs> in some ways. 
Um, but um, we had four youth in the vestibule and um, how many, it was like 30 cops who showed up and tried to remove the four of them. And um, we actually got out, we were actually, we had just left to, to eat the first meal like away from there um, that we had. And we got a call that this was happening and like we all hop in the car, <laughs> um, a, a bunch of us organizers from, yeah, uh, from, from BLVC um, and get, get back to the police station and like community actually starts showing up, right? Because people start sharing this on social media that it's happening. Um, and we actually have a 12 hour standoff with the police that day um, in which they um, were like ramming their bicycles into youth um, in which they dragged a um, black Muslim femme by her hijab um, when they punched another black uh, queer femme in the face. Um, and like, and this is, you know, this is not even mentioning the rubber bullets and the the pepper spray and, um, all of the other violence, um, that was inflicted on folks throughout that whole day. Um, but we held down the occupation. Um, the police department actually ended up being investigated, um, for the ways in which they treated protest, um, protesters that day. Um, and yeah, I mean, so, so that tells you a little bit about some of some of some of the violence and the trauma and um, uh, and the pain and the uh, that we encountered um, during the occupation um, and obviously like even just the act of violence not to, to even speak of the act of violence that was committed against um, Jamar's family and 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 in Jamar's life being taken the grief that community and the anger and the pain that community was feeling. Um, uh, the ways in which our occupation was actually able to transform that and build community was super powerful for me. Um, one of the one of I think the mo- one of the really important things about the fourth precinct occupation um, is um, the the site of the fourth precinct actually used to be a community center called the Way, um, which in there there was a set of riots in 1967 in um, North um, in North Minneapolis, and the community center was actually um, was actually burnt down. Um, and the city of Minneapolis decided to respond by, um, saying, oh, you, you know, I guess what you need is not a community center, but a police station. And they built a police station over this community center, this community center that was a space, um, where they were, um, experimenting with like what it means to, uh, to really cultivate black revolutionary love. Um, and it was replaced by this fourth precinct police station. And um, the fact that our occupation happened there and um, the fact that the space was taken over um, and the fact that um, the way that community was taking care of each other um, during this occupation was um, far surpassed a lot of the ways the city of Minneapolis tries to take care of the community um, is, I think, was kind of sort of the ancestors' revenge in some ways. Um um, they, I think they were speaking through our action um, and, and, and taking that, that space back and, and um, really helped us to transform it in those ways. Candace, would you add stuff? Yeah, that's the, that's the fourth percent. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think there were like multiple interventions through the ancestors and elders that definitely held us down. Um, even like we held... Uh, 
I can't remember if Miski talked about this, but like a black Thanksgiving on Thanksgiving day when like bought these like major sort of tents and had like a bunch of tables um, and had folks from all over the place cooking and donating food um, and had like, you know, probably over a hundred something people just out there um, eating directly in front of the fourth precinct on the street sweet potato pie, chicken, collard greens, mac and cheese. Like I've never seen so many turkeys in my life. Um, uh, And, you know, that was an intervention by some elders to just be like, hey, like let's create this space. Um, And yeah, so I just think that like sometimes like the ancestors and the elders just like force the healing on you Um, and, and get you to respond accordingly as well. And I think the fourth precinct was one of those, those examples that we saw a lot of that. And didn't it also happen that somebody came and shot into the crowd? Yeah. Um, there were threats leading up to online that basically the police did not take seriously, um, further proving our point that they are useless. Um, <laughs> and, um, someone did, uh, shoot into the crowd of sort of, a, a trio of, um, uh, white supremacists injuring multiple people, leaving folks in the hospital, um, for an extended amount of times. Luckily no like fatal wounds or even nearly fatal wounds were, um, were created. So, uh, you know, like, thank God for that. But yeah, like also having to then sort of, uh, recuperate and, um, create, you know, space that felt okay enough to continue to hold down, um, after like that sort of like really extreme form of violence that in some ways living in like, you know, a theoretically purple leaning blue state, um, with a bunch of good old Minnesotans, Um, Did no one really think that was possible Um, (laughs) that racism was that real or, or that even that violent here. Um, And that to sort of like, I guess just be proven wrong. Um, Not that black people didn't know that (laughs) Um, I should say like white folks and and non-black non-black folks maybe weren't as clear, clear to the level of violence that black people were experiencing in our state. Um, But yeah, to have to sort of like create emergent strategies around how to create, how to hold down safety and, and having only so many tools to really think about security in that kind of way, because so much of this was new for us too. And how did you do that? Like, especially, I mean, talk about conditions, starting with, you know, what the family and community was going through around Jamar's murder and then going into such direct confrontation. I don't think I, I don't think it landed with me before what a 12 hour standoff with like youth and police would feel like, like, I don't think I heard that 12 hour piece before that is unbelievable. And then I'm sure it's cold because it's Minnesota and it's the end of November. Like, and, and then you have white supremacists come and literally shoot people like I don't know how many days it continued after that, but literally how did you continue and, and what did you do, especially after the violence from the police and the violence from the white supremacists? What do you do in the space? What do you do in that moment to, to make people feel like they can stay? Uh, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind, I think there are, there are so many things that, a way I could answer that, but the first thing that comes to mind is like our team. Um, like, we had folks who had been 
throwing down with BLM who had been helping to lead BLM. And then we also gained a lot of folks and built a lot of really rapid trust um, in a set of black folks who had been organizing or being activists or things like that for a while Um, across like different groups. Like it wasn't just BLM Minneapolis Um, black liberation project helped to hold down um, oftentimes like nightly shifts of just security and patrol, things like that. Um, and like a lot of other groups that came out and, and supported us in ally groups. But yeah, I think like a big piece of it was the team. Um, and I feel like for me personally, at least like being able to do that in a way and also like, you know, every couple of days get to go home and feed my cat and take a shower, um, and like be able to, I was still always restless if whenever I left the fourth precinct, um, uh, but to really be able to like go and, and do that in order to take care of myself in order to make sure that we were able to take care of some of the other needs that came up at the camp. You know, I'm like oftentimes seen as like a logistics person. And like, that was the biggest logistics challenge of my whole life is it, you know, is feeding somewhere between like 50 to a thousand people a day um, outside in the cold. Like, uh, things like that. So I think that the number one thing was like having a team with us who that we had built a lot of su- trust with and a lot of support um, in order to, to make it happen, to make it feel safer, even if it always wasn't like we had this concrete plan in place around safety or security, um, to know that there were people who really cared about making sure that this was the best thing it could possibly be um, and fighting for justice for Jamar was like critical. At least from, that's mm. my thing what would you say miss um yes to all of that and um when you're talking about like the aftercare, <laughs> um I also think we learned that we didn't take care of ourselves <laughs> right um like to like I ended up in the hospital after the fourth precinct with like an ulcer right um all of us had um yeah I've, everybody had um some sort of like trauma, whether it was like, yeah, the, the, it, it lives in your body, right? Um, it, whether it's mental health or like your, your body being in pain from being outside in the cold um, for days on end, or you missed work because you, you know, put your livelihood at risk to, to be here because it was important. Um, and so I think we learned that we didn't um, care for ourselves in the ways that we needed to. Um, and that if we were going to continue to put our bodies on the line, um, for black liberation, um, or for anything, um, but especially for black liberation that we had to make sure our black bodies were going to be here for as long as possible. Um, so I, you know, uh, after the fourth precinct, we actually, um, uh, we, like we ended up getting a lot of support, um, from like different, um, from different groups locally and were able to create a fund, um, it's like a $30,000 fund <laughs> for people to just access body, body workers, ac- acupuncture to access, um, mental health, um, mental health professionals. Um, like if somebody wanted to get therapy, um, for black and POC folks who like really threw down, um, for the fourth and fourth precinct, um, just so that we could actually get some of those services, um, get some of that care to our people. We partnered with the people's movement center, um, so that we were u- utilizing um, Black and POC um, therapists and 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 um, caregivers um, to to provide that. So like trying to be intentional about like 
how we use our resources to prioritize care um, for, for, for Black folks, um, um, and um, also like how we're supporting creating infrastructure um, for, um, for, for, for Black healers and POC healers, especially um, in Minneapolis. Um, you know, so they're getting the support <laughs> so that they're able to continue to support us as well. Um, there was actually um, there was actually like a, a Black Healers Network that came out of the Fourth Precinct. Healers just organized themselves locally um, and and, um, and 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 started building there. So even um, just like us realizing the gaps that there were and that we needed to really prioritize care for ourselves um, in order to continue to be able to care for our community um, was one really big lesson that came out of the Fourth Precinct. And just like also, I think that one thing you're bringing up for me, Miski, that is like a thing to point out in here too, is like how much, you know, I think we get a lot of praise for the fourth precinct. Um, and I love, you know, sharing the story where we're like, oh, we were, we thought we were going to get arrested the first day. I was not prepared to sit outside in the cold for 18 days. That was not the commitment I originally made. <laughs> I had to quickly readjust. Um, but you know, that was such a like high intensity, high energy, high like resource, um, you know, giving and consuming event and direct action. And I think like one thing that, you know, we learned especially is like, you know, the, that not caring for ourselves is never worth it because of the uh, the ultimate burnout that will happen. You know, like Miski went into the hospital. I had to like quit my job. I was like worried about my mental health um, for a really long time. <laughs> um, I did like, you know, gained a bunch of like unhealthy weight, all of these things. Um, but also just thinking about like, how also do the folks who are showing up, especially for black folks in those moments, also understand that the work happens after the work too. Um, Cause you know, like what we didn't see a lot of other than like a few key folks, like Miski shouted them out, people's movement center, and as well as headwaters foundation for justice, which helped to raise that money um, so that we could access the healing work that was needed. Um, folks kind of disappeared, you know, Um Folks weren't ask, asking the questions like, hey, how do you recuperate from this? What is the support needed from all of us right now in order to get y'all in a really sustainable place? How do we recognize the amount of trauma that you just um, took on for the benefit of our entire local progressive community and for Black people you know, all over the world? Um, how do we recognize that? And how do we support y'all in that process? You know, I remember talking to allies like just a few weeks after and then being like, so what's the next move? Like, what's the next campaign? Um, or like, you know, folks being shocked that like we might want to um, pay our bills by like asking for, you know, if people want us to come and do a thing or talk about a thing, asking for like small stipends and things like that so that we weren't having to put crowd rises up because some people lost their jobs, you know, some people ended up having to like, you know, lose scholarships because they got bad grades. Like these are the real sacrifices that black folks took on during that process. And so I just think it's like, that question is not just for the folks who are doing the actual work, but also the folks who say that they're in support and solidarity um, is how do, how do we support that aftercare um, and encourage our comrades in like taking that time and that pace um, by actually practicing that with them um, is just like such an important lesson that I have, I've had to learn to then 
shape my interactions with um, non-black folks in those moments. Um, because in Minnesota, it's really hard to do large scale things without um, like allies and, and things like that um, because of like the, the demographics here. And so just wanted to lift that up as like a thing that's been a lesson for me as well. Um, and maybe over some of the interwebs that we here's this podcast mm-hmm. will hear too. <laughs> I'm talking to y'all white folks. I'm yes. doing you and you. Hello, and listening. Hello. <laughs> I like remember very distinctly, like it wasn't until like I looked up in April, which was like what five we the occupation ended on December fourth. And I was like, Oh, I might could make it, <laughs> you know? I was like, oh, I might be okay one day like that. I can actually consider that. So the depth of like um, what so many folks um, experience um, is hard to even name now. Um, And I want to name like something that Candace surfaced a little bit earlier, like um, the fourth precinct um, in the, in the ways that we were able to build with people with like decentralizing our power. Right. Um, uh, we um, were actually able to build so much leadership. So much of our community came into um, our um, came in came deeper into the movement um, and and wanted to build with us. Um, so th- I think that's the other piece. Um, like really t- caring for our people is so important, <laughs> um, so that we're actually able to grow our movements in sustainable and healthy ways. Um, so yeah, that's it. This is the time in our show where we take a short break to hear an affirmation from our community. Thank you to those who send in your messages of community love, gratitude, and appreciation to be shared on the podcast. Let's hear from Jen. I'm sending out a whole lot of love to Aaron Johnson of Holistic Resistance. I'm so inspired by you, Erin, and the ways that you continue to invite people into the work of fighting for racial justice from a deeply intimate and real place. The way you embody your practice of getting close and your ability at the same time to be so open, flexible, and vulnerable, it allows so many more people into the collective. I'm grateful for how you show up and the ways that you fight against racism as an African heritage man. The ways you're able to directly work with white people, make yourself available, it's so inspiring and so deeply powerful. I am grateful to know you and I look forward to seeing how this work continues to evolve. Thank you for being a strong example of patience, hope, commitment, and so much love. Thank you, Jenny, for sending in your voice and to Aaron for the incredible work that you're doing. If you enjoy this segment and have been thinking about someone, either a person or an organization or movement that you want to thank, or even want to give a shout out to your favorite river or tree or author who uh, is no longer with us, anything that gives you inspiration and resilience, we welcome your voice here on the podcast. Um, We actually don't have any affirmations queued up for next week, so this is a perfect time for you to record your own and send it in so that this segment can continue. 
You can do that by looking in the show notes for the link or going to healingjustice.org and looking in the upper menu for the words share and affirmation. Click there and you can send it on in. Thanks y'all for sharing your beautiful voices with us. And let's get back to this critical conversation with Candace and Miski. You've named such clear things. And I also want to just open up the floor to like any other supports that you wish you had had, because one of the tensions that I hold around having this conversation about taking care of ourselves, pacing our work, like, um, is that there are moments that demand real sacrifice, right? And like, I think increasingly under this administration, under climate change, under just like the escalation of militarization and police violence, like we are increasingly going to be put in positions in this country and we meaning everybody, obviously like black communities and various communities, this is nothing new. And I think collectively, like, for me, coming from a white community, we're going to be put, we're going to start to have moments where we're actually put on the spot in like survival moments, especially around climate change. And those are moments where we might not have the option to pace ourselves. Like we have to confront the thing and make dramatic sacrifice. And yet if we're doing that consistently without stopping to take care of ourselves, we won't be here. So there's just like this tension, right? Where I don't want us to go back into like this healing land where like we don't put our bodies on the line in a real way anymore. Um, And yeah, I guess with that, like I just would wonder, are there other supports? What could have made the amount of confrontation that was actually necessary at the fourth precinct and on behalf of the life and dignity of Jamar Clark? Like, what would have made that level of confrontation less traumatizing for you and your folks? Like what supports um, do you wish you had had? Mm, That's a good question. I mean, I can start with one um, that comes up that I think we're, we're learning right now as like a network. Um, but especially Miss and I are, are, you know, still really involved in our, our local chapter here with like our dope ass team. Um, but like, honestly, what could have made that less traumatizing or felt like that work was, um, more rooted in also a healing practice is the prep work of building movements beforehand. Um, and I think that's like the thing that has been so clear to me is that there's not a lot, I think, be, given the conditions that we had, given the training that we had at that moment, given the sort of infrastructure um, and structures and ways of thinking about the work um, in the heat of that moment, like uh, we didn't have a lot of those sort of like fundamentals of like movement building um, that I think now as like, you know, we've, sort of changed our name to Black Visions Collective, Um, we're actually really trying to go in a little bit, taking a lot of those lessons and figuring out, like, what is the structure that, like, holds us together in a really, like, radical um, but, like, life-affirming way? What's the kind of story that we want to, like, put out there in the world, right? Um, And, like, then how do we want to do our work? What are our strategies? In Momentum, which three of us are all a part of, we call that DNA, right? Other folks call it that or similar things. Um, but I think that's really the thing is like having 
Um, and we're having this conversation a lot in Minnesota right now, as we're sort of like in the, in the, like the lull of a movement cycle, right. Where we're not seeing these rapid fire, intense escalations all the time. We're seeing them, you know, still pretty consistently, but not at the same rate that we're seeing them beforehand. What does it actually really look like to dig deep and really build, um, and build so that we are like laying a foundation, you know, um, and not just building like rickety structures that can kind of last these moments. Um, and I think that's the thing we needed. Um, but that's like, you know, hindsight is one twenty twenty, and two, it's like, we wouldn't have learned these lessons without having not had a lot of that stuff. But now for black visions collective, we're really thinking about how do we create that sturdy foundation so that when that next movement, that next moment pops off, like you said, it will, right. It's coming. It's probably coming at even more rapid pace than, the last time around, um, we're really ready to take on that work in a way that doesn't drive to immediate burnout. Um, we're thinking about how do we put systems in place. Um, and then we're also thinking back to like, you know, and this is what I have loved from learning from folks like Adrian Marie Brown and Prentice Hemphill and other folks is that like healing justice isn't this like side note. It's really at the center of our work. Um, and, and so if we really figure out how to center healing justice and transformative justice in the middle, um, we're then approaching those moments with that in the middle, right? <laughs> um, and that's what we're always working from. And that means that we always can come back to that. And I think that's what's really powerful um, in having learned through those things. You know, like, of course, I could list off a bunch of things of like, yeah, like 40 years ago, the progressive movement shouldn't have tried to cut out black people, you know, um, <laughs> for the convenience of narrative or like labor shouldn't always be consistent on trying to use the same old tactics and not, you know, hearing from it's increasingly black and POC and membership. Like we can go into all of those sort of like specific progressive movement politics. But I think a lot of it is about how do black folks actually have the, the resources and the time and the capacity to build those foundations to help um, lead in those moments in a way that feels sustainable for in life affirming um, is the thing I wish we had. And now I'm like, but next time we will have is sort of like my commitment to the work right now, um, especially locally. I mean, and, you know, all these organizations can give black people all their money, but that's a different, that's a different story. (laughs) That's real and central. That's real and central. It takes resources. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Ms. what would you say though? (laughs) Um, Yeah, all of that. I don't know if I could um, say it any better, but like what's even coming up for me after you share that, Candice, is um, like the work of black liberation, the work of like even, um, you know, uh, folks who do somatics work, right? It's about like creating choice, um, make it, like creating opportunity for us to make different choices in our bodies, about our lives, about our communities. Um, so I think I'm just, yeah, I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity for us to like um, be, create, be creating a world in which black people have different choices. And if you're thinking about being an ally to, to black folks or creating a world in which you want to be free, right? Because for everybody to be free, black folks got to get free. Um, so if you're interested in our collective liberation, if you're interested in black liberation, um, how are you moving through the world in a way that you're creating more choice for, for black people <laughs> on an individual level? Um, what is your complicity? What is your responsibility? Um, and, and, um, what is it you're doing every day? Um, so that, you know, we have more space for self-actualization and for self-realization, um, 
yeah, as people and as community and as, yeah, and beyond that. Um, there's so many things for us to hold on to and jump off of, off of what you both just offered. And one thing I want to put a pin in is that Candace, I have a dream someday that we will come back and do a whole episode together about liberatory logistics because oh my god talk about heal Swim. healing something that is like so deeply central and also so on the edges of a lot of the stuff that we do um and i know that you are like a teacher and about that right like in the way that you do that work <laughs> um but i feel like that's a i just care about there being really good food <laughs> but yeah that's where it started yeah but <laughs> That's where it started. I had to keep up my figure, and I was worried coming to these meetings, <laughs> getting salad. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, totally. Absolutely. Liberatory logistics awesome. and down. Okay, I feel like that's, like, the whole next conversation. And then the other thing I want to just ask about, too, is, like, since all of that work in 2015, I mean, y'all are still in this work, like, doing it on a daily basis, so many things have changed in just only a couple of years. And yet the, the rigor and like, uh, of what's required of us remains extreme and constant. Um, and I'd love to just hear some stories of like, what are some of the things that you are doing for yourselves now? Um, maybe differently. Um, so that you are still here, you're here in this conversation, you're mentoring other people, like you're, in this work, right? Um, what are some of the things that you do for yourself that make that possible? Miski, should we talk about the Purple Palace Project? Yes. Mm-hmm. I think so. Um, you are so doing that. <laughs> <laughs> Miski and I um, actually met um, years ago um, through like friends of friends and our sort of like meeting was connected to like both of us wanting to live in a collective with um, other queer women of color. Um, and we did that successfully. It was called the Purple Palace. Um, and we lived in that collective for three years. Um, and, you know, probably without that house, Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter Minneapolis wouldn't have had a place to meet half the time. Um, um, and we're in a process of experimentation on how do we basically just like live collectively and um, provide space for our community. Um, and then this last year, we partnered up with um, a comrade, comrade and ally, Eli, um, to buy a house together. Um, and so the beginning of January, we actually bought a house um, somewhat through a reparations model with Eli um, to be able to put down a down payment. Um, and it's a, a currently two, soon to be three unit um, with a basement sort of space um, in South Minneapolis that we are calling the Purple Palace Project. Um, and we're in this like really cool experimentation of like implementing all of our values and also trying to create resources that navigate cap the harms of capitalism while also providing housing for housing and space for, for especially queer and trans folks of color in our community who are, who are doing movement work. Um, And I don't know, I just think that like in all of this work, I think there's this, there's a way in which you can really get caught up and you be using all of your skills um, to just be like building organization, to be building movement. Um, And sometimes we forget to use our energy um, in ways to also be helping to sustain our lives. Um, And so like currently 
I am living in the building. Uh, Miski will be moving in eventually as well. Um, and our hope is also to use it to generate resources to buy more properties um, that we can help own and control and, and live in and move our family in. My dad lives in this house too with me now. Um, but as well, like provide for our community. Um, and so like, I just think about the Purple Palace project, one, cause I want more people in the world to know about it, but two, um, because it is one of those like practices that's really keeping me going in like, I'm like doing this work, but in a lot of radical, untraditional ways that also are about sort of sustaining, um, a really critical thing for me, which is housing, right? Um, I need a house to do this work. Um, and so that's like a cool thing that I think that we're both in practice now around. Yeah. Yes. The Purple Palace Project. Um, I love that we're doing this. A couple of things I would add is like, um, you know, it would have been like cheaper and easier for us to just like get a single family home. Right. Um, but we wanted to get a, uh, get a, um, a bigger space so that like it wasn't just providing housing for ourselves, but providing housing for other folks right now. It's all black, queer, and trans people who live there. Um, we're also able to use, like, we're actually using um, the basement space as office space for um, black, um, queer, trans-led orgs um, in Minneapolis. Um, we've got, like, a lot and a half in the back. So we're going to, like, partner up with our neighborhood association so that we can actually have, like, a co-op situation where, like, we can have black, queer, and trans, like, gardening days and, like, Think about how um, we can be providing um, some some green space to to community as well, um, and so so yeah, we wanted a space that is like multi use and like can 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 be some space safe space um, for for community and folks who are really trying to build movement space and like also create like um, some sustainability for ourselves at the same time. Um, and so like really thinking about investment in self and investment in community in that way. Um, and, and what does it look like for us to, um, like subvert some of these systems, right? Fight gentrification, um, and provide housing for, for our own, for our own people. Thank you. That is such a, I mean, every aspect of the project is so amazing. And also like, I I feel like something that sometimes gets lost when we get up in our heads about healing justice and all the complicated things it's going to take that, that to support us to be well, it's like, how about just housing? Like, (laughs) right. Food, yeah, (laughs) you know, warm water. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. (laughs) Those, those things are important too. It's a beautiful project. I'm super excited. Next time I come to Minneapolis, I need to come knock on your door. Um, Yeah, please do. And help with a, a painting project or whatever you have going on that weekend. Oh um, ownership means always going to Home Depot. <laughs> yeah. And I also want to ask too, because I know this about you, Candace, for you to say something about travel. Oh, oh don't even get me started. Mm. Um, <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, I, I would say like, and Miski has some like really solid individual practices, but for me, a big practice has been, um, and really has been since I was 19 when I was the first person in my family to get a passport, um, and traveled to Spain for a few months has been really critical in like my process around healing. Um, one, just to understand that there is, there are other ways of existing outside of sort of the U S normative narrative that were sort of prescribed and 
not even prescribed, but like forced down our, our throats. Um, and sometimes I get away to just get away to hang out with my best friends with some cocktails on the beach, um, in the most ethical ways that I possibly can. Um, but also trying to, you know, um, travel to intentionally build, especially with black folks, um, who are doing organizing work, um, in places like Colombia and Nicaragua, um, in Brazil. Um, and yeah, travel's just been really big um, and has been important for me and my experience of just like understanding the world and really starting to learn from the folks, especially the black folks that I've had the privilege to organize around, how so many, um, you know, I think there's a thing in movement space that we say is like, we have all that we need, right? There's like this basic principle of organizing that the folks who are most directly impacted know the solutions to their problems. Um, but sometimes I think we think about that as too insular and forget that some of those tools have also actually been spread out across the globe. Um, and so how do we start to like build our black liberation toolbox by being in relationship with each other and understanding the different ways that we are all in daily acts of resistance. Um, and I will say like my, my folks in Brazil have like, especially I had an opportunity to travel there twice last year, have really taught me how the cultural components of music and food um, and celebration as integral to organizing space and building those spaces um, can really be part of not just like um, it, not just like strategy, but also healing um, in order to strengthen our work. Um, and so, yeah, sometimes it's about the like chill out, cute boom, boomerang of me in a bikini or the, the intentional travel to, to build and connect with um, my family across the world. How about you, Miski? Any particular things you want to share about how you've been caring for yourself or, or even new moves you're making to do that in different ways? Um, I think the way I'm most excited, um, just because I found out this week, <laughs> Um, the, the most recent new way I'm like investing in, in my own caring is I actually applied to be part of, um, bold. Um, it's a black, you know, you've talked about bold here before everybody, if you don't know bold, look them up, but black organizing for leadership and dignity. Um, they have a, um, year long, um, cohort of like 30 people who they take through a, um, like deep personal transformation and um, track, I don't know, um, that involves um, somatics and reflection and um, really getting clear on your commitments. And um, I'm excited that I got accepted. I found out I got accepted this week. So I'm going to be, I've got my first retreat next month and um, like really excited to um, learn more about myself. And I think really excited to like get clearer on, um, like my shape, you know, um, and, and what shape it is that I, um, that I want to have in the world. Thank you. So excited for you. It sounds so awesome. Um, Yay, Misky. and you know, we had aspirations to talk much more about what's going on now in the black lives matter network. And, that's going to have to be another episode. <laughs> um, so as we kind of are, are running out of time together, um, I wanted to ask y'all 
first, I know you're going to be offering us a practice that people can download as the next episode. Um, and can you say just a couple words about what you'll be offering so people know what to expect when they go looking for that practice? Um, yeah, so a teaser. We're going to talk a little bit about how you can think about um, planning, implementing, and then the post-care around direct action that feels more life-affirming and feels more healing in the process. That's awesome. And especially for folks who were listening to the story about the fourth precinct and felt really moved and also challenged around like, how would we think about holding healing work um, and holding ourselves and each other through action? It sounds like it's going to be a perfect fit. So thank you both so, so much for sharing your wisdom. Um, So excited about the Purple Palace Project and all the beautiful work that you do. Um, and thank you for sharing of yourself so generously with me and with everybody who's listening. So great to be with Mm y'all. Thanks for having us. Yes. And thank you for doing this and holding the space and doing all of this amazing work. Thank you, Candice. You just heard a conversation between Candice Montgomery, Miski Noor, and Kate Warning. You can download the corresponding practice to think through how to incorporate healing in moments of direct action and escalation. Candace and Miski will talk us through some examples and questions to ask ourselves when planning for the preparation before a big action, how we can center care during direct action, and aftercare and follow-up after the action. We invite you to submit an affirmation or gratitude to share your voice on the podcast. You can do that by visiting our website, healingjustice.org. And as always, we live off of your contributions at patreon.com slash healingjustice. So join the 50 plus folks who are supporting us on Patreon if you have even a couple dollars a month to do so. The links are in the show notes to learn a little bit more about the work that Miski and Candace are doing, as well as a link to donate to the Black Visions Collective Movement and Legal Fund. And you can also find us on social media. We're sharing quotes from our guests and some inspiring stuff to keep you going in the work every single day. This podcast is mixed and produced by Zach Meyer at The Coal Room. And thank you for your commitment to building movements that liberate all of us. Hear you next week.